Well, last Sunday, Easter Sunday, at five o'clock in the morning, yes, five o'clock in the morning, 20 members of this church, some of whom may be here today, I don't know, 20 members of this church gathered on Telegraph Hill to declare, in the same way as Cleopas did, that it is true, the Lord has risen. Now, I'm not sure whether it was intentional or not, because I, I am not an eyewitness, as they were. Uh, I was not up at five o'clock. But the sunrise service, rather ironically, began in complete darkness. And the service, though, lasted for about 40 minutes, I think, and just over halfway through, the sun began to come through, and the service ended in lovely morning light. Now, those that did attend said there was something really special about the sun rising during the service. Darkness became light. And it was impossible to experience the whole thing as anything other than a wonderful natural transition. Not just celebrating the light, you see, but also the passing of the darkness that preceded it. Well, today's passage, the reading that we heard about the road to Emmaus, is also about a gradual coming to light, but of a different sort. And my talk this morning will pay attention to the changes that are experienced by the two companions who walk the road to Emmaus, and in doing so encounter Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus. And what a life-changing encounter it turns out to be for those two. More of that anon. But let me just first say how interested I was to hear Mike talking about creative ideas that we've received and those that might be harnessed in the months ahead in mission. Because when I saw that we would be doing that today and we'd get feedback on creative ideas, it made me think a little bit about our passage because, in a sense... Jesus, as the risen Lord, had to announce his resurrection. And that's quite a big thing to announce. He had a big question to wrestle with in terms of how he might do that. I mean, if he walked into town in the marketplace and just declared himself in front of all the people, he would have caused quite possibly a near riot. Perhaps people might have believed that he hadn't been properly crucified or that this was a piece of trickery. He knew that Mary, Joanna and some others had seen him at the tomb. And that's okay, the news was out there. But if he, as a first step, went to be amongst his disciples, there's every chance that they too would just get caught up in the strangeness and relief of seeing him. No, he needed to do things differently, creatively at least to start with, and he had an idea. And thankfully, Luke recorded what happened next. And that idea was that he would walk alongside two followers of his on the road to Emmaus. And in doing so, take these two on a real journey, okay, seven miles, probably two or three hours walk on a dusty road, but also a journey of understanding. He would explain the resurrection, that they would become excited and enthused about it and him, and they would want to 
relay what they'd heard and experienced to others. Now, I don't know about you, but some of my best conversations with other people happen when I'm walking with them. Walking seems to give space, give space for the casual inquiry. There are distractions that can relieve tension in a conversation. As well as if we're walking outside in nature, getting a proper sense of our place in creation. And the Emmaus narrative is a process, therefore, of gradual revealing, a bit like the sunrise service. But it's also one where we, the reader, are kind of on the inside because Jesus knows how things are going to pan out. Luke knows how things are going to pan out. And we're in on the secret because we know who these two companions are talking to. And that allows us to see the changes within them in sharper relief. And there are three changes, I believe, that they go through in this passage. And this is the structure for my talk this morning. I believe there is a change in mind. There's a change in their heart. And there's a change in their direction. I'm firstly going to tackle the change in their mind. Well, just note that this section is by far the longest, so don't become discouraged if you think, blimey, he's only, you know, um, still going, and he's only on the first one. Uh, The first is by far the longest, because in a sense, it's about their understanding of the whole resurrection, and therefore important. So, a change of mind. Well, As he moves alongside them, Jesus first questions the two companions to open things up and just gets them to state what they know and how they interpret it. So he asks, what are you discussing as you're walking along? They say, haven't you heard? Heard what? Jesus replies. And in verses 19 to 24, they give a fairly breathless account of all that's happened over the last few days. They say... It's about Jesus of Nazareth, they reply. He was a a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we'd hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't see a body... They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. So, it's a fairly breathless account. And what are some of the ways in which we might describe their account? Well, it seems to me they're in shock. They don't know where Jesus is, what's happened to him, whether he's dead or alive. They're certainly confused. Are they to believe the accounts that they've heard from the women, the vision of angels that they've received? Their understanding's incomplete. They speak of Jesus merely as the prophet from Nazareth, handed over and sentenced to death. They're not seeing the full picture yet. But most significantly, perhaps, I think they're disappointed. Verse 21, we had hoped 
that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. I think they're feeling let down. If Jesus had been the Messiah, he wouldn't have been killed quite so easily without any struggle and without all this confusion over the consequences. So Jesus had not really been the one after all. Well, Jesus' first priority in hearing that account of where they're at is to put them straight on their understanding. And I don't know if Jesus sounds a bit harsh, probably depends how it was said, but how slow of heart you are to believe all the prophets have said. So Jesus goes about correcting their reading, their understanding of what happened. And how he does so is mentioned in verses 26 and 27. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. So, he put their understanding straight through scripture. Not through individual verses, but through the whole narrative of God's mission. About God's character of faithfulness to his people and his redemption how that would be embodied in a Messiah. So he began with Moses, who spoke in Deuteronomy of the prophet that will be raised. The references probably to the Son that are throughout the Psalms. And certainly, perhaps, Isaiah 52, 53. Jesus wonders, have you really missed all of this? For in Isaiah, for example, it says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and make him suffer. And surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God. Jesus is saying it's all in there. It's all in scripture. Can't you see that the Messiah and Jesus might be one and the same? Aren't the events that appear confusing to you just at the moment, in fact, precisely consistent with what God always said would happen? through the prophets. Of course, you and I can see anything with hindsight. We've got 2,000 years of Christian teaching to help us see clear-sightedly who Jesus was and is. With hindsight, we can spot anything, a good decision we made or a friend we were glad to link up with. But in the confusion and grief of the moment, it's not easy to see things quite so clearly. Jesus therefore helps them do that. And Jesus brings scripture to the context to show and reveal aspects of God's character that they might miss. It's happened just as God said it would. Can't you see? He's powerful. Can't you see? He can be trusted. Can't you see that God is faithful to those who are faithful to him? Jesus wants to reveal God's character through this. But by the end of this part of the episode, about verse 27, it seems that the companions are seeing more clearly. The fog has lifted somewhat. Jesus has changed their minds. Because where they saw Jesus of Nazareth, they now see Jesus the Christ. Where they had seen a prophet... They now see a Messiah. 
Where they saw a victim, they now see a saviour. Where they'd seen only a confusing set of events, they now see the pattern of God in history. They understood. But they had not yet recognised. Recognised the one who was alongside them with their own eyes. Their experience was not complete. And that's why we turn now to the second and third dramatic changes in those two companions of which Luke tells us. So we turn next to a change of heart. And if we go back to towards the beginning of the story, in verse 17, in those early stages, before the light had not fully dawned on them, Jesus asks them, what are you discussing together? And Luke writes, they stood still. In other words, stop walking. Their faces downcast. And I want to suggest to you that there are two main reasons why they, why they were so downcast, why they stopped walking at that moment. And their faces, it seems, told the story. Faces do, don't they? Our faces reveal our emotional state very often. We can sometimes be good at hiding things from others. Or, but when we know someone well, we can tell just how they are by looking at them. The first reason for their sad faces was that they'd lost a friend, as they saw it. Someone in whom they'd believed, spent time with, enjoyed the company of, who'd been sentenced and brutally punished for no apparent offence. There was injustice in them, anger, as well as sadness. And they'd been powerless to prevent all of this. But the second reason that they were downcast was that with the death of Jesus as they saw it, they'd also lost hope. They had hoped that this one would be the Messiah. Yet the hope had also been crucified along with Jesus himself. And so they were downcast. And that comes across in their terse response to Jesus' questions of what has happened. They say, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do you not know these things that have happened? But through the journey that they take with Jesus and the steps of understanding and uncovering scripture as they grow in understanding, there's more than their minds are changed so too are their hearts. How do we know that? Well, because in verse 29, they urge Jesus to stay with them and enjoy their fellowship. They've welcomed what he said and simply want more of him. In the next verse, they recognize him. As he takes bread, gives thanks and breaks it, the penny drops and they see Jesus before them. The scales are lifted from their eyes. And in verse 32, they remember how Jesus talking about the scriptures affected them emotionally. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Their hearts changed. Where they'd felt downcast, they felt reinvigorated and joyful. Where they'd felt powerless, they felt committed and empowered. And where they felt desperate, they were now filled with hope. 
Their encounter with Jesus had changed their minds and they now understood. And it changed their hearts and they now burned with hope. I think our Christian faith is a bit like that, at the very least a head and a heart exercise. It's clearly, you know, one thing to have an understanding of what Scripture says. But if that leaves us cold and indifferent, albeit well informed, then we haven't turned towards Jesus at all. Similarly, if we love Jesus but can't explain why or what he's done for us, then our faith is unlikely to be very deep-rooted, let, let alone attractive to others. Our turning towards him may be fleeting. Perhaps all love is a head and a heart exercise. Don't you find, when you read favourite passages of the Bible, you admire it at both of those levels? It affects our heart. We can be moved to tears and want to probe its meaning deeper and deeper. I encourage us not to just understand the Bible with commentaries, but also to enjoy it as words of love. That's a work of the Spirit within us. And the Spirit seems to have taken hold of our two travellers as their journey progressed. And we turn to the impact it makes on them. A change of direction. A final point. Now we're... We're not told why these two companions were heading to Emmaus, whether it was their home or just some other destination. Once they realized what had really happened and who they'd been with, they'd seen Jesus break that bread. The only thing we're told is there in verse 33, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. No dallying in Emmaus. Their plans changed. They rose and returned, presumably the same day. A seven-mile walk became a 14-mile walk, and I bet they walked the return leg quicker. Why? Because they had this news to share, this unbelievably good news. So they found the remaining 11 apostles and others and told them, it is true, the Lord has risen. And they told their story. The seed of understanding that Jesus planted bore fruit. Because they knew not only what had happened, but why. The flame of passion that Jesus lit within them hadn't extinguished, but burned brightly in the conviction and the joy they shared. And the spring in the step that Jesus gave them made them change direction to become powerful witnesses to others in Jerusalem. We know nothing more about Cleopas or his friend from elsewhere in the Bible, but it seems natural to imagine that their experience of Jesus that day became a lifetime walk with the Lord. And that brings me to my conclusion. And I'd like to finish just by mentioning very briefly three aspects of the two journeyers' experience of Jesus that I think are relevant to us listening here today in our own walks of faith. Whether those walks are long walks that are progressing smoothly, ones where we need to take time out to consult the map 
where we've retreated to a roadside cafe or walks that haven't yet fully begun. First, we remember from their initial recounting of events that they began their journey in a mixed state of grief for what they'd lost and confusion and anger about events. And it was in that emotional turmoil into which Jesus spoke and transformed it. Jesus didn't avoid them and think, hmm, bit tricky, I'll come back in a better moment. He took raw grief and changed it. He took confusion and brought understanding. He took anger and it became enthusiasm. Second, Jesus was initially at least a complete stranger to the two folk. His wasn't a familiar face or a trusted source of information, at least not at first. But he became both. Let us. Let us be open to the surprising voice of strangers. And discern the truth that they may speak to us. If I think about my own walk with Jesus, some of the best pieces of guidance that I've received, the most memorable, have come sometimes from people I've met only once. And third, let's remember that Jesus may seek us most urgently when we're not among crowds, but when we're in solitude or in close companionship, that in those creative spaces in our walk, the clearings, the long paths, the still mornings, or the damp afternoons, on our walks, actual or metaphorical, invite him. Invite him to join you and listen to what he might say. Unlike Cleopas, we walk not with Jesus in the flesh, but the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, who walks alongside us, who is found in the pages of this book, whose voice may be unfamiliar to us and quiet, and who urges us to pray and speaks to us in creative ways. And who also comforts us and leads us on. And who's present with us as we break bread. It's to that spirit that we turn. Seeking that our, our minds may be made like Christ's. That our hearts might melt with his and that our direction may be ever towards him. Amen.